Hey guys, you're listening to Totally Stoked Podcast with Amelia Travis, yoga teacher and wild child turned multi-six-figure business coach, writer, speaker, and spiritual warrior. Totally Stoked is an experiment in radical honesty. On this show, there's only two rules, show up and tell the truth. Each week, we share uncensored, truth-telling, shame-busting conversations with thought leaders, entrepreneurs, visionaries, and modern-day mystics revealing their rise to thrive stories, current challenges, and sharing their most powerful tools for awakening, growth, and well-being. This is your place to let down your guard, open your heart, and remember that being human is a crazy, wild ride, but you don't have to do it alone. So buckle up, baby, because we're heading full speed ahead to radical self-love and a totally stoked life. Are you ready? Let's dive in. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Totally Stoked Podcast with your girl, Amelia Travis. Super excited to introduce my guest today. She's the founder of Lit Yoga, which is a method based in functional movement that she's been developing over the last two decades as a physical therapist and yoga teacher. I respect and admire her because she's really a thought leader in the yoga industry, combining physical therapy and yoga to meet the needs of modern lifestyles. She has a podcast called Redefining Yoga, where she explores the ways that yoga has to evolve to be functional and practical and meaningful in the modern day. If you want to connect with her in person, you can find her at her home studio in Princeton, New Jersey, Yoga Stream, where she developed LYT, Lit Yoga. She offers online daily yoga classes on Lit Daily, which can be found at lityoga.com. I am excited to talk with this guest because... For years, I've been watching her, admiring her in the online space, because she really has a no bullshit approach to yoga. And in the westernization of yoga, we've we've had, you know, fluff, we've had ego, we've had doing things a certain way just because, you know, a certain lineage has told us that we have to. So I love the people who are willing to go against the grain, who are willing to raise their voices and say, hey, this doesn't make any sense. We should be doing it a different way. And I'm really, really grateful to introduce um, a woman who I've learned a ton from and continue to learn from, Laura Hyman. Thank you so much. What an extraordinary intro. I'm very honored by your words. Thank you very, very much. Yeah, you deserve it. You're, you're kind of a badass in the yoga world. And like, I think you do that because um, you keep showing up every single day to teach from a place that isn't uh, mindless. Like you're actually really critically thinking about the things that you're teaching and seeing how we can figure out how to use this ancient system, you know, of, of philosophy, but also movement. How can we actually make it work for today? Because we're not living in India 5,000 years ago, we're living in the United States today. And it's a completely, we have a completely different lifestyle, nutrition, movement, stressors, everything is, is different. So sometimes I think the purity approach is, is just way too archaic. And that's one of the premises that you're often teaching on. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think it's so fascinating that yoga has been almost this box that was unopened and no one examined it in ways that we would never do in any other um, path or, or you know, chapter, whether it's like the way that we think or the way, oh, sorry about that, there goes my dog. You know, we, we, we need to question everything because that's what evolution is. It's what's working, what's not working, how do we need to adjust, change, um, completely reverse directions, whatever it is. And so, yeah, for me, it's like, I think it's so interesting to look at what we can take that would be very helpful for today, but never put it in some sanctified box that we wouldn't examine. Because the, the truth is a lot of some of the old practices are, are not beneficial for all people, you know? And so, yeah, there's, that's, I, I've always been like fascinated by people's like almost um, making it a religion that you would never question. Yeah. Well, and a lot of, you know, traditions encourage that. I mean, I initially trained um, in the Shivananda lineage, which I have respect for. It's classical Hatha yoga, later trained in Ashtanga, also, you know, very rigid in its approach. Um, And 
and then later kundalini which has its own purity kind of standards um and it's interesting because it took me years like i've been practicing for 17 years and teaching for 10 and it's 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 only in the past couple years that i've really started to say take what works and leave the rest. And you know what? If you don't want to wear a turban, don't wear a turban. Like if you, you know what I mean? If you don't want to count in Sanskrit, don't count in Sanskrit. Like yeah. you got to do what works for you. Um, and I think people figuring that out, it does require that there be teachers who are willing to go against the grain. So I'd love to hear like, what is your background with yoga? Where did it find you? How did you get started? Um, were you like into exercise first and then this was a compliment? What's your story? How did you get here? Um, yes, I was always, always into movement. I mean, I, I have three brothers. I'm a triplet. Um, my brothers and I came into the world together on Halloween and they are, and then my older brother is only two and a half years older. They're all six, three, you know, strapping athletes who I, who brought me into the fray. I just was one of them and, and didn't always do everything with them, but I just was always moving with them in some way. And then later on in, in high school, you know, did athletics. I was really into dance. And in the dance world was the first place I begin to observe like the rigidity of the ballet world. And then this kind of open expansiveness, critical thinking, let's see if we kind of break out of this box of ballet in the modern world. And I, I, I could appreciate the structure and discipline that ballet offered me, but I loved this, this ex like modern, like what you can internally rotate your hip, like just this, and it, that looks okay. And it was just very freeing. So I think that was probably, you know, all these, the, the dots along our path um, stay with us and inform us and influence us. And that probably was one for sure. Uh, and then you know, I ran cross country for a little bit in college, became injured and immediately was like, I need to do something else because college people have way too much time on their hands. Even though I was in a very arduous program, I was the college athlete. So I needed something else. And I started teaching aerobics. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, in that place, I taught aerobics that had this, you know, kind of formula to it. Um, everyone learned the same moves to the same songs, but there was like hundreds of songs and, and it was just this really nice um, quality control and it was a very popular studio. So I held on to that and later on used some of that kind of idea in my own yoga studio. Um, and then when I, I went to graduate school for physical therapy and when I graduated, I moved up to New Jersey and I began running and I was teaching step aerobics, I was teaching aerobics, step aerobics, hip hop. But in the running group that I was in, they offered free yoga. And I was like, yeah, I probably need to stretch. You know, I kind of had the idea mm -hmm. like yoga is sitting, you know, in Lotus with a mudra or it's stretching. Mm -hmm. And it was a pioneer of westernized version of Ashtanga, uh, the person who taught it. And I immediately was like, whoa, this is hard and I had the feeling I had of running the focus mm -hmm. and the endorphin type release, but I had the, like almost that just sensation in my body at, that I did with dance. So mm -hmm. I immediately fell in love with it. That had been in New York and I lived in Princeton and I looked in Princeton and didn't find anything around here. And so I just started studying on my own and I started, I was teaching aerobics and I started teaching yoga. And at the time, get this, this was 25 years ago. This was a wellness, beautiful wellness. It was kind of probably what a lifetime fitness is like now. Beautiful wellness place. And I said, I want to teach yoga. And they're like, no, people here won't like yoga. Mm. And, I, and I said, okay, well, I think they like this kind of yoga. But for a year, we called it flexible strength because they didn't want to call it yoga. Mm. And then when I, by the time I had 50 people coming in a class, they're like, call it whatever you want. It was basically, <laughs> a, you know, it was basically like a power yoga class. But I was really, I'm, I, I like learning, I love learning, and I wanted to learn more from, besides just the books that I had and some videos. So I did go, um, at the time there was no Yoga Alliance, I went to a Yoga Institute of Houston because it, was, it looked pretty well-rounded. It had Ashtanga, Iyengar, and what were the beginnings of Anusara. Mm -hmm. um, it, was, it was 
didn't teach me much at all, really, mm -hmm. honestly. But, you know, I'd already been teaching by that time for three and a half years. And mm -hmm. so it just, I felt more than anything, meditation. Like we did um, meditation and that I took in and then also um, silent, the practice of silence. Mm -hmm. So I, those were the two things that I really learned. I didn't really learn anything about the practice of, you know, modern postural yoga. Mm -hmm. So I, at the same time, I also got an advanced, um, like a postgraduate certification in what's called neurodevelopmental training. And I was working with very involved neurological patients, stroke patients, brain injury patients. And a lot of the stuff you do with them when there's an area of the brain that's been injured um, is, is developmental, what's called developmental patterns. Mm -hmm. So from zero to two years old, we don't have like any kind of handbook that tells us, okay, you're going to flip over. Now you're going to get on all fours. Now you're going to come into half kneel. We just have that in our wiring. And so the idea is that wiring is hardwired. It's always accessible to us. So it, even if there's a brain, um, some kind of damage, you can go back to that. And that can be the foundation upon which you learn your movement patterns again. And another part of the brain might take it over from the injured so I was doing this with very involved stroke patients and, and it has, you know, a lot of this feedback from the floor, a lot of core integration. I was seeing incredible progress. And at the same time, this was now about five years into doing, maybe six years into doing classical vinyasa, little ashtanga, like you mentioned. And I was feeling some of the very beginnings of like a rotator cuff, mm -hmm. um, just more than anything like achiness, nothing mm -hmm. like... And I started thinking, my, my practice isn't really changing. I don't feel any stronger. I can tell something is not, I'm not doing this well. Mm -hmm. And I started like fusing, I, I had really separated yoga and PT. Mm -hmm. And when I started thinking like, look at what my really involved stroke patient is doing, crawling, you know, in half kneel, like things in quadruped. What if I applied that to a healthy person who hasn't had a brain injury, what could happen? So I started fooling around with it on my own. And, you know, in short, my practice totally changed. I felt a new level of integration. And I had had my, my first, my, my daughter by this time, I could feel like my core, you know, my interior core wall, my abdominals were stronger than they had been prior to having a baby. When I had my second baby, it's like I came back from that I don't want to be that annoying person, but it was just like, I came back from that faster because I just, I had developed that sensorial motor relationship. And I started teaching my yoga students this. And so anyway, that was kind of the evolution of my style, which is really a very codified blueprint analytical style that also gives room for a ton of creativity. So there is a short, long answer. <laughs> Do you feel like, I love that answer. And it, yeah. it just makes me curious because, you know, a lot of teachers in, in yoga talk about, um, they, we talk about sensing and feeling versus, you know, observing based on external feedback, like the mirror or even a teacher's cues or whatever. But I, I feel like we talk about it, but a lot of people don't actually do it. And I'm not sure if that's because we have like in your background, you had years of dance. And especially when you're talking about modern dance embodiment practices, right? Like having actual awareness and connection with your body from that sensing and feeling space. Um, and in the women that I work with, um, in both, you know, retreats and teaching yoga, but also in like womb healing and in, um, in coaching, being disconnected from our bodies is really, really common. And I'm sure it's actually not just with women, it's with men as well, but I work primarily with women. So that's where I observe it the most. And I wonder if one of the things that you're offering is just a very practical, tangible way, like there must be, you know, in the way that you speak, and maybe it's because you're kind of taking out some of the yoga language and bringing in language that's more um, accessible to people that people are actually able to to find their bodies, right? Because it seems like that's something that, um, I mean, I can go to a yoga class and I can go through, if I'm, if I'm having a day where I'm really in my head, I can go through the entire class and not get in my body at all. 
Yes. Like I can stay in my head the whole time. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I know um, one thing I can say confidently is no one in my classes is going through their grocery list. Mm. No. And it is, it, and I've, that's this whole, the, the idea is that yes, when you connect to your body, you inherently are connecting deeper into the, it's co conscious and subconscious connection to the mind and the spirit. They are all intertwined. The mm -hmm. body is actually the most successful direct way mm -hmm. to get there, mm -hmm. in my opinion. Now, because I've seen plenty of people who, you know, do a lot of practices uh, for the spirit and, but are not necessarily the nicest people, then, mm -hmm. you know, they're not practicing in a real life. And I, in fact, think that, um, and I'm thinking of a few right now that their bodies are, they've kind of left their bodies aside mm -hmm. and just focus so much on the clearing of the mind and the connection to the breath and the spirit and all that, but you can't leave it behind. And you are so right. Many women are, and I don't know the reason. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of metaphysical reasons. What I often say to people is we don't really need to even know the reason, but we do need to figure out how we can get there. Mm -hmm. and, and you know, from your Kundalini background, I mean, like when you get into your deep core, you are getting into your stability, your identity, mm -hmm. your ego, your ambition, your vision. I mean, these are really fundamental ideas and practices and, and embodiments that we need to feel whole. Mm -hmm. it, it's what we stand on. If we don't have, if we don't have that, how can we even have vision? Mm -hmm. Just chitter chatter in the mind until you actually take it and really from the gut get it in there. So I think what um, what I tapped into without even realizing it in some way was I was just helping anyone who was injured, meaning not totally whole, whether it was from a brain injury, whether it was from a disconnect to their deep core. Um, or any other part and helping them find themselves in that whole place. And that is super powerful. And I think there's very few adjectives that encompass empowerment uh, or emp feeling that um, sense of empowerment, that noun, that empowering feeling that um, people aren't going to want. You know what I mean? Like, if you said, what do you want? Well, most people are going to say, I don't want stress. I want to feel peaceful and all that. But empowerment encompasses all of it. Mm -hmm. Because when you feel, you don't feel empowered if you're stressed. You're lacking power because you're like, oh, you know, you're, the energy is being just dissipated. Mm -hmm. you, it, with empowerment, you feel all of that. So there you go. Lara, I'm curious because I know you've trained many, many yoga teachers and you talked about how one of the things that you feel like you've done really well through your studio and through your, your online training program and through your yoga teacher training is codified um, ways of inviting people into the experience uh, that allows them to, like you said, not be in their grocery list, right? So I know that all the yoga teachers who are listening or even yoga enthusiasts are wondering, can you share, um, you know, one to three tips about what are you doing differently in the way that you're cueing or the way that you're modeling, just the way that you're teaching that is um, keeping people really present or helping them be more embodied. Um, and, and I'm, you know, not asking for a friend, I'm asking yeah. for myself. <laughs> How can I not be in my grocery list? And, and is it, do I, you know, do I need to be reliant on the, the guide or the teacher for that? Or is that something that I can internalize and I can just, I can take these cues for myself and take them into any yoga practice? Um, because, you know, like I said, I've been doing this for a long time. I should know that. And I feel like sometimes I do, but I want to hear from you because I, I think you've really um, figured this out in a sense. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that in answer to your question, um, I, the, it's the, it's the sequencing. It's the, it's the actual entire experience. So from beginning to end, it's an experience. Nothing is arbitrary. Nothing mm -hmm. is arbitrary. So I have a theme of every class. Some people think you don't need a theme there. And that's, I'm just telling you the way I do it, but if you, mm -hmm. that's why you're on here, we want to hear right. how you do right. it. <laughs> I, mean, like, like I have a theme 
It could be, you know, and it's not just like, okay, so today, for instance, um, or yesterday, I forgot what, I'm like, I, I've recorded a lot of things, but, you know, I've done, uh, yesterday, I did myofascial melody. And it was this idea of like, myo is muscle, fascia is, fat. you know, we have connective tissue that um, really can shrink wrap us into whatever shape we spend the most amount of time in when we have imbalances from the fascial layers, it, we, we can release that and we'll have a lot more freedom. And with that, we will feel this melody, which is this beautiful kind of harmony of energy and vibration between our breath, between our movement. And so I will have a theme, for example, and then everything I'm cueing is channeling back into that. Mm -hmm. The other thing I think in the, in this experience is that I get people into their core immediately. Mm. I assume that everyone that walks in the room is imbalanced. I had mm -hmm. a guy come in yesterday. He's been practicing for many years and I saw, you know, a few things and I was like, okay, he's new to me. I'm careful about like not over <laughs> overloading, mm -hmm. but I was like, let me help him with his down dog. He was hanging in his shoulders. He has a lot of thoracic rounding. So I gave him a couple of cues. He thought about that the entire time. And then afterwards he's like, I can't believe that was like mind fucking blowing. Oops, mm. sorry. You know, sorry. No, we're good. We're explicit. Right? And, and, I, and, and he said, I've been practicing and no one's ever like helped me with that or cued to that. Well, that's why. So he's just going into where his body goes. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so when people are like, oh, I just want to tune out and feel it. Well, unfortunately that doesn't work well for mm -hmm. the most people because you walk into the practice with imbalances. You've been sitting at your de desk. It doesn't mean you're not gonna be able to find upright, but you're gonna come to that practice. So the first thing I do is the reset, which is to get you back into a neutral pelvis and neutral spine. Mm -hmm. So immediately I'm, I'm having people tune in. Within five minutes, there's no chatter. It's complete silence. All you hear is breath, because we get into the glutes, and the deep interior core muscles. So I know when I don't do that, if I were to go take somebody else's class, my mind does not drop in as quickly, mm -hmm. even though I have years of experience. So there is something to the actual, it's not just me, mm -hmm. it's the methodology. It's the, mm -hmm. the sequencing of it. You have to reset, you have to go through some of those developmental patterns. And the entire time it's pay freaking attention. We mm -hmm. are so inattentive in our lives, mm -hmm. all of us as humans, because we're bombarded with distractions. Mm -hmm. And what I'm saying is pay attention to the way your spine is aligned to the way nothing is arbitrary at moment by moment, even though I've done it a thousand times, maybe more than that, I'm thinking about my down dog as I'm doing it. So the connection of mind to body comes together and then it comes through the medium of the energy that I hold. So I think that's the biggest answer is like we, it, and if yo and if our yoga classes become too distracting, I love music, I use it, but I've, I know people that like blast music, have very little instructions, going really fast. Um, you might in fact be doing your grocery list because this is too much for mm -hmm. your nervous system. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if it's really slow and really quiet without a lot of instruction and attention to it, you're going to immediately float out of there. Mm -hmm. You've got to have, it's, there's got to be an enticement. Your brain loves novelty. Mm -hmm. and you've got to convince your brain to hold on, hold on moment to moment think about, and it is paying, it's paying attention. And when you do that at a cellular level, you're not going to be distracted and you're, mm -hmm. and you'll come out of it. And your nervous system has already done the job without it. You don't even have to think I need to be calm. It's calm mm -hmm. down mm -hmm. because you're regulating the intelligence of your nervous system. When you pay attention to how you move. Mm -hmm. mm, so good. You know, one of the things you said, I thought, a while back, I thought was really interesting because you mentioned how you're friends with some people who do a lot of spiritual practice. They do a lot of pranayama. They do a lot of meditation, and yet, you know, they're not necessarily uh, visibly enlightened, right? Or we're not necessarily picking that up. And one of the things that I noticed after studying Vedanta for many, many years and really, really trying Vedic meditation and thinking this is the only way to meditate, and like kind of just beating my head against the wall. Like every time I would go to the ashram, I'd go to, you know, 
it, it was so difficult for me. And I made up a story that I'm a really bad meditator, right? That I'm just the worst meditator. Um, and then I found Kundalini. And an interesting thing happened for me that after, you know, 16 years of 15 years of practice, and I had always avoided Kundalini because, you know, there's fear mongering around Kundalini. And even, you know, my senior teachers had said, just, you need to be very pure for Kundalini. It's the Ferrari of yoga. So stay away from it unless you're like really in your own sadhana and your diet is clean and all of these things. So I was like, oh, that's not me. <laughs> you can't go to Kundalini because I'm a hot mess. So I finally went to Kundalini and, um, I love, this is going to sound weird because I, I don't actually today love Ashtanga, which I find somewhat painful sometimes, but I loved the pain of Kundalini. And when I say pain, what I mean is, you know, if I'm, I one time was sitting in a meditation, a 40 minute meditation that was like arms at 60 degrees, right? It was like a, kind of an ego eradicator, but it was a different mudra and it was 60 degrees, 40 minutes. By minute 18, I don't know what minute it was, but I do know that, you know, by a certain point, I was like, I physically cannot do this. I'm, I'm in so much pain. I'm going, I'm going to die. <laughs> this meditation is going to kill me. Now, whatever your thoughts are on like pain should not be experienced during asana or whatever, just stay with me. Because what happened for me was because I was so focused on the sensation in my body, I was actually able to to check to to check out and check in somehow in my mind and i experienced you know the massive blossoming of of indigo at my third eye and then kind of went into this space of being aware of the physical discomfort in my body but also being totally totally present totally in the in this altered state and when minute 40 was up and i came out of it it was like holy shit one time of this kind of meditation and I have this really, really deep and profound experience versus 16 years of seated silent breath meditation and feeling like I, I occasionally would kind of get somewhere. Now, you know, all that being said, it, it's also important to remember that meditation is a practice and it's not necessarily about this goal of blasting off into 5D or whatever, but let's also be real. Everybody wants to blast off into 5D and see all the purple yeah. and all the things, right? Right. Um, and so I feel astral. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. <laughs> like, but I feel like the revelation that I took from that was Kundalini for me helps me be really embodied. Like it's like, I just, I just, Absolutely. it's because yeah. it is drawing more on that tantric lineage of like, feel what you feel rather than you know um some of the vedic teachings which do t tend or ha can be used in a way that is bypassing right like we can have this um some of the vedic teachings especially eradication of the ego and and um you know there's almost in a way sometimes in a way like emphasis on dissociating or people can move towards dissociating when they're told you're not your body, you're not your mind, don't identify with them. And it's like, okay, but these are the vehicles. Like, this is what we have to work with. So can we work through them instead of trying to go around them? And for me, it like took me, you know, 15 years to come to that realization. Um, what are your thoughts on that? What are your thoughts on I mean, I think with Vedic, it's like, you know, suffering is, you're going to suffer, right? So you kind of have this in your mind. Whereas Kundalini, it's like, you are feeling a sensation and it is your choice what to do with that. Mm -hmm. And in that choice, it, it gives you incredible space to feel mm -hmm. like this is a lot of sensation and I can decide like, actually, that's all it is. It's mm -hmm. just sensation. Mm -hmm. I don't have to get angry about it. I don't have to get um, freaked out. I don't have to give up. I can actually be here. And in that, you go to that next level. Mm -hmm. And I, I think um, that's what's so fascinating about like feeling these, these sensations. And to me that that's what they are. It's not, it's not the same as like, oh my gosh, joint compression pain. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is like purposeful lighting of a fire and you're just going, mm -hmm, I'm here and I'm just, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. and then that, in, I actually have a class that I called fire and it's based on 
Kundalini principles. Mm-hmm. And, but I just, I make it a little bit different, but it's that idea that um, it's okay to feel the discomfort of that because we will grow it, 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 it to numb ourselves. So many people are walking around like half awake and I mean it in their, you know, really half awake, mm-hmm. whether it's consciousness, the choices they're making. I mean, if you, you can't do a Kundalini practice, or I would dare say my type of practice and go out and eat shit. You'd it's harder at least, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Because it's not that we're saying, oh, that's bad to do. It's that you are connected. You're mm-hmm. not numbed out. You're not half awake and doing like repetitively habitual things that probably aren't going to serve you in mm-hmm. this form of empowerment. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I, yeah. I all like of, the answer. Yeah. Of, you know, I, and I agree with you. I think that, I think that as we continue to awaken, and this isn't to say like, you're going to be perfect and have like an orthorexic only drinking, you know, green juice and whatever, but like, there is like less interest in alcohol. Like you wouldn't, you know, there's things that like, there, there actually are, um, either harmful or just lower vibration or they suck your energy or whatever. And when you get into this, this state of awareness, they are just lose their appeal in a sense, or they're, they're not as, um, you don't, you don't you turn to them. Yeah. We don't turn to them as, as default yeah. coping mechanisms. Right. Laura, I'm really curious because you've practiced with a lot of different traditions and, and done tons of self-study and, you know, and also trained with other experts and you have this Western background in physical therapy. What is your, what has been your most profound meditation experience and where did it where did it come from? Um, and then what is your, what does meditation look like for you today as a component of your practice? Is it found in the movement? Do you, do you sit for meditation or what is that aspect of your yeah. practice like? Um, so for me, I have practiced, I've been actually trained in a couple of different forms of meditation. I did a transcendental meditation um, training, which was really kind of cool. And then and it's funny because I still have the mantra and every once in a while, like if I'm having a sleepless night, I'll just say the mantra to over and over again. I don't know if you're familiar with Transcendental, but you go through a, just a ritual and then you are, you're given a mantra that mm-hmm. you're supposed to repeat when you're meditating. And Are so they that, like Vedic mantras? What kind of mantras do they use? Are they in English or are they in a different? No, no, no. They're in Sanskrit. Okay, and cool. Really, I think it's actually based on, I, they, they make it very secretive, but... I think it's based on your age, honestly, like, like age this to this, you're going to say this, you know, so, and you're not supposed to share it with anybody, but right. when I did it together and I was like, what's your mantra? He's like, I can't tell you, but, <laughs> <laughs> but we kind of figured out we had the same one, you know? Oh, got it. Yeah. Um, so I think it's an age thing, but so I liked that, but it didn't, you know, like for me, I'm, it's, I'm just kind of like a laboratory. I want to try a lot of different things and it mm-hmm. didn't land for me, but I know a lot of people like transcendental mm-hmm. because it is, you repeat the mantra. And I will say there is some kind of, for me, like almost like atomic recognition of that mantra. Mm-hmm. So like when I am restless and I say it, I can feel like this, like my, some, you know, I just, mm-hmm. my parasympathetic nervous system just recognizes that. Um, I've also been trained in more Buddhist um, meditation with the eyes half uh, closed. And that was interesting to me because it was this idea that it's it's not real life to close your eyes because mm-hmm. things are happening. And so mm-hmm. the, you need to be able to find that same state of balance with the eyes stuff being around you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like sometimes you're better. And it's, and I've found that like, even when my practice, like in a handstand to me is like, you've got to be super zoned in. And when I'm on the most difficult, you know, um, ground or bench or something, rock formation, um, nothing, you know, dumb or dangerous, but I just, I tune in at a higher level. Like everything mm-hmm. is like focused right in that moment. So, in answer to your question, I have, I've been trained in a couple different ways and my practice now is very, it's not, there's nothing um, codified about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
if I move in the way that I do every day, I don't need to sit in any way. Like I'm very channeled. Like mm -hmm. I get so much stuff done. I feel like not, I mean, I just don't have that static. I just mm -hmm. don't, I don't know mm -hmm. why. And that might be just who I am anyway. Mm -hmm. And, but I would say probably once, maybe twice a month. And then some periods where I just feel like I need it. I will sit midday usually. Mm -hmm. um, I can't do it at night. I, morning is not really a time for me. Although I drink coffee and I just sit. So in a way, mm -hmm. it's kind of like, you know. <laughs> Girl, that's my kind of meditation. Right? Like that's it. I'm sitting in bed. My husband brings <gasps> me coffee and he knows. He gives me like five, 10 minutes, dark room. So in a way, that's my meditation. It's like an awakening and I'm just kind of coming to. But otherwise, I'll sit if I need it. Just that like, it's almost this, I need a... Um, I can tell I need just like a, uh, I need a pause, but I don't want to nap. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit more of a like, mm -hmm. but if I'll tell you, if my, if my movement practice is consistent, it's my, it's really my form of meditation mm -hmm. and I walk in nature. So yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Um, so with your, like you mentioned a little while ago, you have a class called Fire. It draws on some Kundalini technique. Um, and, you know, you mentioned that you had learned and studied some Ashanga, some Iyengar. The, all of these traditions are very um, pure or there's like, you know, yeah, there's a rigidity or rules around like keeping them pure. And there can be a lot of backlash from certain people in the yoga community who feel really strongly about that. Have you been on the receiving end of any backlash for the way that you teach? Have you like, have people ever said to you like, Hey, you know, you're fucking this up. You're doing it wrong. You shouldn't take these pieces from that. You can't do this. And if, if so, what has been your, um, how do you hold in integrity? The, I mean, obviously it's experiential and you know that it works because you're feeling it in your own body, but yeah. what has your experience been with like the way that you teach and how that's been received in the greater yoga culture specifically? Uh, well, I would say that I haven't had anybody say it to my face. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I do know in the past, in when I kind of started teaching this more lit methodology, which mm -hmm. you start off on the ground. I mean, you have to imagine 10 years ago, that was just unheard of. Mm. you were maybe sitting but then you mm -hmm, in terms mm -hmm. of vinyasa yoga mm -hmm. oh yeah sitting, and then you would start sun salutations so to start with doing like some some core work some quadrupeds some you know really getting the core integrated uh was just very weird at the time mm -hmm. like now mm -hmm. i think a lot more people are bringing that in there and um and then doing the repetition that I do and, and, and working toward inversions, like handstands and forearm balances. I, there were definitely people who, a few, not many, um, would be like, this is just, this is not yoga, you know? And always those people, and I will say it with a lot of conviction, those are the people with the most insecurity. Mm -hmm. Because I will never tell somebody anyone this is this and this is not like mm -hmm. that's just not my job i am not i'm not any higher power to have mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. so to me and if the understanding of yoga in my mind is how you are using this practice to be a better person just full stop so if it's a matter of connecting to your core moving in a variety of ways and that makes you feel better and therefore you are more awake, alert for yourself, for your family, for other people, then that to me is the highest form that you could practice. So I will say I, I never doubted it um, that much. I didn't doubt it. I, I certainly kind of wondered if it would ever go beyond, you know, I, once I have a base, my base are quite religious. Mm -hmm. So I was like, fine, you know, like I'll just keep teaching this way and, and some people won't like it. And I just kept going with that. And then I'd have people that would take my teacher training and they'd, they'd be all jazzed. And then some of them would go into some really, you know, hardcore yoga areas mm -hmm. and they'd say, gosh, you know, these people are like, this isn't yoga. This is too hard, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, PS, 
they're all doing great now. So it's mm -hmm. like they, I needed to be strong for myself, for the, for my opinions of this, but also for, for the people that I'm training and it's worked really well. So what I would say is be like, I'm kind of obsessed. Like I think when people are successful, there's a level of obsession with what they do. Mm -hmm. And if, if the, if I gave anyone advice, I'd be like, love, love what you're doing so much that you're obsessed with it. Like mm -hmm. I'm obsessed with make, with helping people feel better with, I want to be moving like this for many more decades. So that helped me when there was any doubt that might've creeped in because of other people claiming this was this or that. Um, mm -hmm. So that's what I would say. I, I'm fortunately now, I think, you know, one of my trainees, I love her about eight years ago, she trained with me and she had some problems with people like thinking it wasn't yoga. And then about three years ago, she said, you know what, Laura, you were just ahead of your time because mm -hmm. now everybody loves it. Mm -hmm. And it, it was just a time period where she really had to hold fast with me. And now, you know, she's like, oh my gosh, look at what's happening. So I would say have faith. If you believe it, other people will also believe it and, and you don't need a lot. So I think I've never been I've never been influenced by how many people like me or don't like me or like mm. that. I just try to be true to true to my beliefs. Mm -hmm. So interesting. Like as you were describing, you know, your methodology and kind of your sequencing, sequencing trajectory and like what you do in a class, I was thinking about, um, some of the best classes that I've been to, which were vinyasa classes, which started with, like baby rolls on the floor, you know, and this kind of really like almost like passive movement. And then, you know, and then I was thinking about like, yeah, in, in Kundalini, how many Kriyas start with stretch pose and like really how stretch pose, which if you don't know, it's, it's, it's kind of like laying in a low boat. You're just laying on your back and your heels are elevated and your shoulders are elevated and your hands are palms down at your side and all of the energy is drawing into your navel. It's basically like you're holding an isometric hold, you know, there's a, that's, engaging your abdominals. Um, and you'll hold that for a couple minutes in Kundalini. So this idea of like starting with core, starting on the floor, like, I feel like you've probably set some trends or, or at least been part of a group of teachers who have been changing those trends, you know, in vinyasa anyway. Um, and it, yeah, I think it's interesting to recognize that like you were just ahead of your time, perhaps. I, I'm curious, that kind of leads me to, because you've built, you've built a little bit of an empire in yoga, if I can call it that. Um, you have a studio, you have an you know, online, essentially online studio or daily online yoga classes. You have multiple teacher trainings. You've been featured in magazines. You've, you've, you've done a lot. You have your podcast. Um, and there can be a little bit of a, again, like a cultural or socio-cultural socio uh, leaning in yoga towards um, like this abundance versus poverty kind of negotiation, right? And, and what I often say is like, to me, to me, poverty is not noble. Like there's no, um, you know, let's not glorify the like starving yoga teacher. Like it doesn't, that doesn't make you better. Um, it doesn't necessarily make you more humble. Yes, sure. Practice the yamas and niyamas, practice a parigraha, like you know, non-covetousness, non-hoarding, absolutely, like, take only what you need. And also, you can better support and sustain yourself and better impact the world when you're financially supported. So um, maybe coming from the PT background, the physical therapy stuff, you, you never kind of found yourself negotiating this, but have you felt any of that, like, shaming around, hey, you're actually succeeding and making money as a yoga teacher, like, you shouldn't do that? No, quite the opposite is most people want to know what's the secret. Yeah. But what I'll tell you, what I did feel a struggle with is when I opened up my studio, this was over seven years ago, and there was a big trend toward, um, uh, what is, oh my God, donation yoga. Mm -hmm. okay? And my when I opened up my studio, I, I had a home studio before that, and it was kicking ass. I mean, I had... Uh, 12 to 14 classes a week at my home studio, 10 people in a class, they were all booked, waitlisted, and people paid $25 an hour. Now, mm -hmm. you do the math, I was doing great, mm -hmm. but it wasn't satisfying to me. Mm -hmm. I knew that I was getting to a 
small group of people who A, had already gotten in on it, could afford it, and I wasn't going to be able to, and, and the biggest thing that really kind of hurt me is they would say like, when you go away, I don't feel like we can, I can go to any, I can go anywhere because mm-hmm. I'm afraid I'm going to get injured or I don't like what they're doing. And that's when I was like, I've got to start a teacher training. And then if I start a teacher training, I'm going to have to open up a studio. So I opened up the studio and I thought, okay, I'm to satisfy my core that I started with, who were paying $25 an hour, I'm going to do drop-ins at 20. So they get a little, because they didn't like the idea of like a public studio mm-hmm. at first, you know? They were of course not. They were spoiled. They had you all to themselves. So it's kind of like trying to satisfy two worlds, which were let me lower the price so they feel like they're getting like it's less than they're paying here. And then I could also open this to the public. Well, $20 an hour, I mean, $20 for a drop-in seven years ago. Um, and it was across the board. There were no deals. It was like $20, boom. Then there's donation studios where people literally are like, oh, I can take free yoga. Cause they would put like crumpled up $2 bills in this you know little thing mm-hmm. and then i would hear like nobody said it to my face but i would hear like well yeah your, your studio is really expensive mm-hmm. and i said i offer a quality product and people pay for it if you go in and you're thinking i'm just going to donate what i based on what i think i'm getting it's like everybody's energy is low mm-hmm. you just pay what you want the teacher isn't getting any benefit from that Mm-hmm. And you're lowering the entire kind of bar for all yoga people. Mm-hmm. It's the group on mentality. I was so pissed by it. I was like, this is awful. This is like Walmarting of yoga. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I said, if you want to genuinely make it available to people, then do what I did next, which was I offered community classes, which were donation. Nobody got the money except a charity. Mm-hmm. So it was the, the um, teachers would donate their time. And, and that really worked out. And we did that for many years. Um, and I, you know, there were communities I was trying to get in there and they still didn't come in with that donation. So essentially you were taking donation classes to a community who could afford to pay and they were choosing to pay very little. Mm-hmm. So that to me, like I found that like, that is a big problem that what at that time. And then it was like, every you know you just have yoga studios all over so they lower the price they lower the price so we've kind of shot ourselves in the foot mm-hmm. and that's where i've been pretty adamant about like i'm i'm offering a quality product when we have an exchange you're going to expect this if mm-hmm. i say you know you're going to pay a higher price i always use the example of like we have a, we have a coffee shop in town it's three dollars for a tiny cup of coffee and it's packed packed mm-hmm. all the time you could go to 7-Eleven or one of these, you could get 99 cents. Mm-hmm. But when you buy a $3 cup of coffee, you are you know that's gonna be freaking awesome. Mm-hmm. And your expectation is higher. Mm-hmm. And so the quality, it, it, there's the energetic exchange cannot be um, you know, overseen. It's really, really important. So the first thing I would say is, if you're new and teaching, you like don't give anything away for free per se, but do get experience. So you might be teaching your friends for free because you do need the experience. It's mm-hmm. kind of like a, you know, double-edged sword. You need the experience to be able to, you know, charge that price. Mm-hmm. But if you start off like giving all this stuff for free, then the expectation is that you start raising the prices and you're just, people are going to fall off. So mm-hmm. it's this balance of like, hold yourself to a high standard, but you've got to meet that standard, get educated, um, be different than the, you know, 99% of the other yoga people. You can't be afraid to be different. Um, And I don't mean be different, like do something totally different, but if you find something that you really like, like the Kundalini people think, again, they do this really well. The people in my community do this really well. They practice this and they're, they really commit to it. And then, then you can, you know, hold this standard that, people will pay for. Mm-hmm. That's one element. And of course I will, I, physical therapy, being a physical therapist, it has been my golden ticket for sure. And my, my ability to look at people and help them in, in a variety of ways has gotten me in so many doors, but it, you don't need that. I would just say, get, I, I've said this from the beginning to all of my trainees, get really, really good at at least one thing, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. really good at it. 
you don't have to don't get try and get good at a lot get really good at a thing so if it's meditation if it's a slow flow if it's for the prenatal people but really specialize in that and don't be afraid to do that mm-hmm. that's such good advice i mean that's a, you know i do business coaching and that's the advice across the board it doesn't really matter what industry you're in choosing a specific niche and really um educating yourself and and developing a reputation in that will help you get the corn on it. And then when you do, you can diversify. So specialize first and then diversify. And by diversify, I mean, diversify your revenue streams, right? So like in your case, going from maybe your home studio to having an actual studio and then an online platform and then a teacher training. And it's like, you can do all of that and you can hold all of it because you have this very specific focus and you developed a strong following in that area. And I'm so thankful for you for sharing all of that because one of the things that I wanted to to touch on with you specifically is how do we find success as yoga teachers? Because I think that is, um, you know, it can be really challenging and it does, it's, if I had to give the advice, it's exactly what you just said. It's really, truly specialized and don't be afraid to be obsessed and don't be afraid to be super passionate about this one thing because, you know, and it can be anything. I did that with stand up paddleboard yoga. And though after, you know, five years of it, six, seven years of it, it was like, okay, I'm ready to like not teach yoga on stand-up battle boards right now. I would like to teach yoga on a firm surface, you know, but I understand. But because of that, I was able to then open a 200 hour training and have people come because for five years I was saying, no, I don't have it. I don't have it, but I'll put you on a wait list. And when I do one, you'll be invited because they, you know, I have people who fell in love with yoga who had never done yoga before they were like, oh, sure, I like paddleboarding. Sure, I'll go outside and I'll try it that way, right? So there's all of these entry points for you to be successful as a yoga teacher, but you won't necessarily find them by looking at somebody else and going, oh, okay, they're doing it exactly this way. Let me copy them. It's like you need to look at yourself and ask what is unique and different about me. Yeah. Um, and that kind of leads to, to, to the last thing that I want to talk to you about, which is, you know, Oh God, what were we, we were talking about the trending towards donation-based yoga and then, you know, teachers feeling devalued. And, and I think that this idea of service, you know, karma yoga, which is so central to the philosophy of yoga is one of the margas or one of the paths that we can take, um, can sometimes compound with like, our tendency to devalue ourselves, especially as women in Western culture, right? Like we, we receive messages from media from a very young age that we're not good enough, not pretty enough, whatever. We need to change all of these things about ourselves in order to be deserving or to be worthy of love, affection, financial success, whatever it is. Um, and so how for you, and we talked about awareness and maybe it'll come back to that, but how can a consistent yoga practice help us shift what we believe we are capable of or help us shift what we believe that we deserve beyond the yoga space. Mm -hmm. In your experience, how is yoga transformative really for our, our, our self-worth overall? Oh man, that's a great question. I mean, I feel like the, the practice, First of all, what I always say is the physical practice that I'm that I'm leading, guiding, trying to spread gives you the real feeling of potential. And it's within that potential that dwells possibility. And within that possibility is what we where we really know abundance lies. And and everything that we would like to focus on. Um, we can do it. So it's through the body and the practice and the paying attention and the celebrating the small shifts. You know, it's not like get a handstand in 10 weeks or 10 days. It's just thinking like, Oh my gosh, that entire practice, I felt so connected to my core or wow, that practice I was able to do, you know, a side plank, without my knee on the floor or that practice, my breath was bigger or that practice, I didn't, my thoughts weren't going. 
when we recognize those things, we are recognizing the potential that is always there and is sometimes covered because of all the things you mentioned, whether it's society or consumerism or you know, thoughts that we've had, um, habitual tendencies, the way we talk to ourselves, stories, all of those things can really hide that, that, that um, infinite possibility. And when we discover it on, in the way we practice, that's when you know like anything, like any, like I truly believe that if I want to do something, I can do it. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm realistic, like I'm not, you know, there's things I know I'm never gonna do physically, but, that, but I'm saying in the, in the reality of my life, if I wanna, if I put my mind in something, I'm like, this would bring me, I know I need to do this and I wanna do this. I, I know I can make it happen. And that's because I practice the way I do. Mm -hmm. And I, that's where I feel like the yoga practice can, can um, you know, some say it uncovers it, it reveals it, whatever way you wanna look at it, all of that is true, that we do have this potential and possibility in there. And it has gotten drowned out, um, fragmented, whatever, from variety of things in life, including things that have happened to us, things that we, um, have come to believe about ourselves or whatever. And we just free that. It's just noise that we have to move through. And then, but when we discover it and, and celebrate it in tiny amounts, um, cause it doesn't need to be a huge shift to celebrate it. Uh, and it doesn't have to be financial. <laughs> it can be, there's many ways of success. Mm -hmm. So I think that it's, it's the possibility really when, when we, when we tap into that and that, that kind of potential for whatever we want to put our mind to. And in terms of karma um, practices, I, I really believe we need to separate in ways that we do in other parts of our lives. Like any of, anybody who has a job in the corporate field, they're not thinking, okay, whatever I make here, I'm, you know, they think here's my job and I'm going to do well so that I can pay my bills, do this, do this, and then be of service, give to charity, mm -hmm. whatever. Mm -hmm. But it's part of the experience of their life, not just the job, but they have the job. The job makes the money so they can do that. Mm -hmm. We have to start rem remembering that if you choose your vocation to be a yoga teacher, um, then you can practice the, the, the paths of karma and, doing, and, and service in many forms, but you have to take care, you have to live. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you, to, you gotta you eat. To make a living. <laughs> you know, I don't ever feel in, um, like shamed about that you are trying to hustle and make a living. Mm -hmm. It is always, if you, for any, whether you're a yoga teacher or you're a veterinarian, it's hopefully for the purpose of also serving other people. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for that. Um, last, you mentioned that when you first were learning about yoga, that you learned a lot of it from books before back before Yoga Alliance existed, before there was yoga schools all over the place and yoga studios offering teacher trainings, you were learning, you were educating yourself. So we love to share a book club selection every week and maybe it's a book from that time or maybe it's something more recent, but um, for anyone who's listening, who's enjoyed this conversation and feels like they would love to learn more about yoga or just a book that you feel like has been personally transformative for you, um, is there one that you'd like to share? Wow. <laughs> Are there 30 you would like to share? <laughs> I mean, honestly, people ask me all the time, oh, is there a book, you know, the, the way you practice yoga, is there a yoga book you would recommend? And haven't found one yet that I think encompasses it all. There's a lot of really good ones out there. And the ones I learned from earlier, you know, they were more traditional and I, I wouldn't recommend them mainly for some of the functional mobility stuff. Um, I would say... I'm much more into the, the, the ethos, the practice of Ahimsa and how we can bring that into our lives. So I have so many books on that. Um, Animal Liberation is a really big one. It's, it's kind of heavy, but it's really this philosophical query um, in terms of critical thinking, when, how we treat other sentient beings, um, how we justify that. And if we justify it in, in this certain way, um, are we consistent across the board with all of, all sentient beings? But it's 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 really amazing in that way. But I would I will recommend another one by Melanie Joy, 
and it's why we um, why we love dogs, um, eat cows and wear no eat pigs and wear cows or something like. That. <laughs> and it really she's brilliant, brilliant philosopher and psychologist. And um, what that to me is the bigger thing is like, can we be critical thinking about the way we move, but also about just our lifestyle? And it does. It's, this is not about being perfect or a saint, but it's really about our choices of doing the the most good we can um, with our time on the planet. So that's one I would highly recommend. Melanie Joy is is just she's brilliant. Mm, thank you so much. And we'll leave those both in the show notes below if you want to check those out. Um, and then I know we've, I know people, if they aren't already familiar with you, if they aren't already uh, practicing with you, that they're probably curious. So I just want to share right now that um, if you, if you are looking to get certified, Lara has a yoga teacher training in person coming up on June 20th of 2020. So starting summer solstice, amazing time to start. Um, and she also has an online yoga teacher training option that is available. So you can check both of those out as well as find daily online classes, um, which I'm definitely going to check out because it sounds like I would actually love practicing with you. So those are all at lityoga.com. It's L-Y-T, which stands for Lara's Yoga Technique.com. So L-Y-T yoga, lityoga.com. And that's in the show notes below. So the last thing I would love to ask you today before you go is just um, if, if we ran into each other in a grocery store or an elevator um, or anybody who's listening just ran into you and they were having a shit day, just like the worst. And they were like, fuck this life. It's so hard. I can't do this. I'm you know, I'm just really, really struggling. Um, what are the words of wisdom that that you return to, or that you would offer to just to just remind us to to keep going? That's so funny because I just wrote this on the whiteboard because I have two teenagers, and you know, I write a lot of like positive things, like "You got this," and but I wrote, um, "Life sometimes stinks, but it will get better." Mm. And I think it's it's the acknowledgement people need that acknowledgement. Like it stinks sometimes. It really sucks. There's, mm -hmm. there's pits in life, but it will get better. Believe that because that is the arc of our trajectory in, mm -hmm. on our, uh, in our energetic world is that even when you feel your worst, you're it'll get better. Mm -hmm. I really fundamentally believe that. And I say that because it, it really is to hold people and to say, you know, I see you and I, and it's not to, um, wipe away problems. Like it sucks right now. It stinks, but it will get better. Mm -hmm. So that's what Thank I you so much for that. <laughs> and you know, it, I, I love that. And it also, um, I was talking with a friend about mindfulness recently and she said, can we use the shitty moments? Can we use the anger, the fear, the grief as invitations to really encounter polarity? Like when we're really fucking angry, can we feel that anger so deeply that we can feel its opposite, which is ease, right? When we are so entrenched in our fear, can we notice it in such a way that we become aware of its counterpart of love? And it was really interesting for me to think some, for some reason, when she said it, it opened up in this way. And when you just said, you know, life, life really stinks sometimes, but it'll get better. It's like, yeah, and in the shit, we somehow have the space for the awareness of of what we perceive as really good. Yeah, so that's right, and that's and and no, you know, and I think that if you lead with that, it's it, it's recognizing exactly it's recognizing the polarity that exists. It isn't saying like life is always this or life is always this. There's a balance, and to feel it all is to make you is to make your life richer. Mm -hmm. You're not going to dwell in it too much, but you're, but you need to feel it and it's, and that's okay. And, and it will get better. And there's ways there's protocols. I tell my daughter, like, here are the protocols for stress or this or that and have them in place so that when you are at in those moments that feel really dark or not great, you, you have some, um, you have some techniques that are going to help you get back to the better place. Mm -hmm. Laura, thank you so much for spending some time with me today and for sharing your wisdom with all of our listeners. Um, I hope you guys fell in love with her. You can connect with her on social media. What's the Instagram? Laura, it's L-A-R-A dot Hyman, um, H-E-I-M-A-N-N. -N. 
and yeah, that's on Instagram and Facebook is, is le, le, like Laura Hyman. So yeah. Google her, you guys. She's everywhere. You could find her. Oh, yeah, <laughs> She's not it. hiding. All right. Thank you so much for taking the time and we'll see you guys on the next episode. Thank you guys so much for hanging out with me on another episode of Totally Stoked Podcast. If you love this episode, if it impacted you in some way, please grab a screenshot and share it right now to Instagram stories, tag Stoked Yogi, hashtag Totally Stoked Podcast. Each week, we'll grab one listener who shared and send you some Stoked Yogi swag. Also, if you love the show, please subscribe, share it with a friend, or head over to iTunes right now and leave us an honest review. Your support and feedback make this show possible. If you have ideas about how we can improve, please send them to podcast at stokedyogi.com. Until next time, you guys, keep showing up, loving people, telling the truth, and remember, keep living your life totally stoked.